Hi, Proximity Church. It is good to be with you pre-recorded across time and space sitting among you. Uh, it's an honor to get to, to share with you guys tonight. I wish I could have done it live. Honestly, I would love to see your faces and I would probably feel more natural communicating if I could see your faces because I'm only seeing my own face, which is a bit weird. Uh, however, we're in the States this summer. Uh, we are there, we're here for two months. And so time change, time difference, time zones, all that, uh, would make it quite difficult. I could do it, but I just don't know if I'm up for it, uh, at 5am. Forgive me. But, uh, it's really fun to get to, to prepare this teaching, to share it with you. Mary and I and the girls, we send our love to you guys. We think about you all the time. You're an incredible community. We thank thank you for uh, the financial gift you guys gave. We were able to partner with uh, some of with some close friends of ours, some Lebanese friends, to feed like I want to say 100, is that possible 120 families. I'm pretty sure uh, with the money that you gave, and uh, it's been a huge blessing during this time. So thank you guys for your prayers for being with us and. Uh, we just always remember our time with you. I think it was back in 2017 that we were able to come and actually be with you all. And just the beautiful DNA you guys carry as a kingdom family on mission. Blessing to you guys in every way. Uh, wish we could be doing this in person. That would be a lot of fun. So I have been tasked with the difficult. I won't say the impossible, the difficult. Uh, I've been tasked with the task of doing a God story teaching on the life of Jesus. And it's just a hard one. I mean, where do you start? I mean, where, where do you go? What do you emphasize? What stories do you highlight? Um, and so anything I do here is not going to fully do justice to the, the riches of the life of Jesus, obviously. Um, you know, I don't want to be a map maker who makes a map roughly as large as the territory he's mapping. Uh, so I will have to cut things down and uh, and focus on some things that stick out to me, but hopefully in doing so, try to draw out those big themes that, that rest the life of Jesus in this broad story of scripture that I know you guys are journeying through as a community. So without further ado, I will dive in. So I'm going to start with the baptism of Jesus. And I think this moment of uh, this moment of Jesus' baptism, I think it's one of the most powerful images uh, that, that we have in the scripture. I think it's incredibly significant as we meditate on uh, the Trinity, on the nature of God, and on our own place in covenant with God, being drawn into the fellowship of the Trinity, you know, as, as the beloved children of God. And, you know, the, to set the scene... You've got the Jordan River. The Jordan River is not a big river. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Syrian Naaman makes fun of it, actually, for being a puny river. And it really is a quite puny river. Um, but in this humble kind of empty corner of, uh, of Palestine, you have John the Baptist. Uh, this man called, invoking as his calling, this verse from Isaiah 40, a voice crying out in the wilderness. And people have come to him to repent because of anticipation of the kingdom of God. And so we're going to talk about a few of those 
themes and how they fit into the, the story of God in Scripture. But I just want to pause on this moment of the story. And, and Jesus comes out, and he comes to John the Baptist to be baptized. Now, the, this act of baptism uh, has a few roots in the Old Testament. Uh, some see it as a crossing the Jordan type image or a Red Sea type image. Uh, so just as, as the people of God passed through the waters in the Red Sea, and then they did it again when they entered the Jordan, that, the, that baptism was sort of a, a, a renewed kingdom sign, uh, which it probably was. Um, there's a sign of it as a humbling and a healing movement in the story of, of Naaman the Syrian. But in some ways, it was an unprecedented movement that John the Baptist was starting. And there would have been a sense of mystery about what exactly this baptism of repentance was, was signifying. And so Jesus comes to John the Baptist and he, he says, I want you to baptize me. And John the Baptist has made quite clear that his role is to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And this idea of the coming of the Lord has double meaning. The Lord would have meant Yahweh himself, the God of Israel, but in a particular way, the coming of the Messiah, he who comes in the name of the Lord, the one who shall reveal the kingdom of God. And John says, this one who is coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and I am unworthy to even tie his sandal. And Jesus, and he says, why you, my Lord, should be baptizing me. And, and Jesus says, it must be done this way to fulfill all righteousness. Very, uh, very cryptic saying there. So when we think this idea of righteousness, fulfilling all righteousness, it's as if Jesus is saying it has to be done this way to set everything in its rightful place. It has to be done this way to restore everything as it should be. That Jesus is inaugurating something that will, that will pave a road and lay a foundation and open a gate through which a renewed humanity will pass. Jesus is going first and it must be done this way. And in, in essence, this phrase, this idea of Jesus fulfilling all righteousness, paving a way for us, opening up the door of restoration, it gives us an insight right off the bat of what Jesus has come to do. We, this was a, a perspective on Jesus that I didn't always have growing up, but you know, when we, when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, they were meant to be priests and kings. They were meant to be the, the, the image of God, the priestly image of God ruling over the temple of God's creation in communion with God. God breathed the spirit into them. And, and what is lost in the fall and in the unfolding narrative is the, that, that image of God, the the image of God within us no longer reflects back God's nature and goodness. It's been turned away into the darkness, covered in shadow and obscured. And now it reflects all types of, of idolatry, of demonic, uh, of demonic characteristics, of, of dominance and of power and of fear and of manipulation. And Jesus, as the, the, the true son of God, as the second Adam, as Paul would, call him, would later call him, Jesus is restoring the image of God in humanity. He is revealing God, but he is also revealing us. When we look at Jesus, we see the destiny of humanity. We see what we were made to be. 
And so Jesus goes under the water. When he comes up, he receives the delight of the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that rests upon him in perfect union. And now we see in this moment the heart of the kingdom. Humanity returned to the place of belovedness in the delight of the Father, under the covering of the Spirit. In Jesus, in our baptism, in our faith, we are now received as beloved, as we were meant to be, as Adam and Eve were in creation. We are restored as we gaze upon Jesus into his image and now received into the delight of the Father. It's this incredibly powerful moment, and it sets up everything else. This is what Jesus has come to do. Now, immediately he goes out into the wilderness, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this narrative, but, uh, but there is a way in which Jesus also goes ahead of us, because we too will follow him into the wilderness, and the, the, the delight of the Father will be tested and refined in our own lives as believers through the wilderness of silence and solitude, through Uh, through the challenge of loneliness and self-doubt. And Jesus goes before us to confront, uh, to confront the devil in the wilderness. And it's, and it's, it's interesting that it says that, that Jesus was led by the spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And it's my conviction that the devil would have come to Jesus wherever Jesus was. The devil doesn't live in the desert. (laughs) Uh, He came to Jesus in the desert. The spirit led Jesus into the desert because in the desert, Jesus could could see clearly with whom he was fighting. We are led into the wilderness with Jesus, into this place of silence and solitude, into the spiritual disciplines that refine us so that we can learn to discern the voice of the Father and the voice of the enemy. But now I'm getting teaching. I'm going to move on. I mean, it is a teaching, but it's supposed to be a God story thing, so I'm going to keep moving. All right, Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and then when he comes out of that, after his victory, after he resists the devil and overcomes him as a faithful son, where The first Adam was an unfaithful son. As a faithful son, fulfilling all righteousness, Jesus comes into the villages of Galilee and it says that he begins to proclaim the kingdom of God. Repent for the kingdom is near. So, to understand the life of Jesus, we must understand the kingdom. Whether it's the kingdom of God in, in Mark, Luke, the kingdom of heaven in Matthew, it's referring to the same idea, the kingdom. Now, this idea of the kingdom draws... On, a, on rich strands of biblical prophecy. Uh, if you remember, uh, back in the book of, Judge, or book of 1 Samuel, Samuel, the people come to Samuel and they demand a king. And Samuel says, it's a bad thing you ask for because God is your king. And this was what was meant to distinguish them. Uh, human kings, as when the system of human kings was not, you know, uh, was, was always a system of idolatry of the idolatry of human ego and grandiosity and power and strength. And in fact, they wanted a king to be their glory and to lead them into battle for all the wrong reasons, all these idolatrous Tower of Babel, uh, you know, deformed image of God stuff inside of them. They wanted a king. But Samuel said, it's an evil thing that you asked for because God is your king. These people were meant to be different because they had God as king. But of course, God had uh, purposes even to this. So, the kingdom runs through the you know the kingdom runs through David. There's a messianic promise to David that uh, that he will have a son who will be the true temple builder who will be like a, who will be a son unto God. God will be a father unto him, and his kingdom will last forever. So there's this messianic strand that runs 
through, through David. Um, but ultimately, the kingdom, the Messiah, was the vehicle in which the kingdom of God was expected to come. But the kingdom was about more than just a political king. In fact, it hit something deeper than this. So earlier I mentioned Isaiah 40. This is when John the Baptist described himself. He, he quotes from this verse, right? Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. And if we jump down to verse 9. O Zion, messenger of good news, shout from the mountaintops. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah your God is coming. The sovereign, yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm, see he brings his reward with him as he comes. So the hope, the messianic hope that the book of Isaiah is prophesying about, all these future prophecies that we love in Isaiah, are about this moment where, where a cry would go out to prepare the way for the Lord, because God himself is coming to be king. The kingdom was this promise that would be fulfilled through the Messiah, that God would restore his own living presence to rule and reign over his people. And when he did that, this, the, the ancestral weight of sin would be dealt with. In fact, that's the first part of, of Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone. Her sins are pardoned. So the, the, the sin of the past would be, would be dealt with. And that, God's, that God himself would stretch out his mighty arm and be king over his people. And when he was, it would restore the calling and vocation on Israel that the people of Israel had failed to fulfill through sin. You know, as, as we saw through the whole narrative of the Old Testament. And when the people of... So you have the rule of God restoring dealing with the sin of the past and restoring the destiny of the people of God. And when that happens, it would unlock God's mysterious, hopeful destiny for the nations as well. There's tons of incredible prophecies about this in the Old Testament, but the prophets always included these, these mysterious, forward-reaching arcs that when God becomes king, when the kingdom comes, when Israel is restored, then salvation would extend to the nations. And that somehow, though I, there, I don't think there was much clarity in this period of time how it would happen, somehow God's blessing would extend out to all the nations and there would be a great healing and restoration of all peoples. I'm just going to read this real briefly. I'm doing it old school here. I don't know my verses teed up. I'm, I'm actually flipping through a physical Bible. Um, I know you're impressed. So this is Isaiah 25. One of these, one of these beautiful uh, kingdom promises. In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. So, when we invoke this idea of the kingdom of God, I'm choosing like two verses out of hundreds that one could draw upon. 
But we have to recognize when, when, when John is saying, I am preparing the way of the Lord, when Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of God is near, they are, they are drawing on a language of kingdom that is an image that rings for the hearers with prophetic imagination and creative eschatological possibilities. It is uh, a sense that the impossible has now become possible and that God's, God's long-awaited purposes can now begin to take shape. So everything Jesus does then is the revelation and embodiment of God's long-awaited kingdom. He is in human flesh. I know you've talked about the incarnation. In human flesh, God is now inaugurating, modeling, and manifesting God's kingdom on earth. And when we think about this idea of manifestations of the kingdom through the life of Jesus, I want to focus on, on three of them. The first is miracles. This is very familiar to us. This is sort of what we think of as, I mean, in the most broad sense, even non-believers would think of when they think of Jesus, right? Um, we think of him as healing the sick uh, and, and uh, you know, casting out demons, the, the multiplying of bread, the water to wine, the walking on water. We have all these number of, of, of miracle stories that are associated with Jesus. And I think that there, this is, this, it's important the way we think about these. Um, as we will flip back to them later. Are these miracles confirmations or manifestations? And what I mean by that is, are they proofs to vindicate that Jesus actually is the long-awaited Messiah? Or are they something deeper? Are they in and of themselves parables of the kingdom, living expressions of the nature of God? Are they an invitation to see the kingdom in our everyday world? Um, you know, these miracles were not mere proofs. Uh, they, they were the anticipated fruit of God's covenant faithfulness when he came to reign and rule. They are what comes to pass when God is king. In other words, you can't really read through the Old Testament and says, you'll know the Messiah because he'll heal blind people. But what, when you go back to the Old Testament, you will see that when promises were made about God himself coming to rule and reign, the type of things people expected to see were the things that Jesus did. I'm just going to highlight a couple of them. They'll be familiar to you. So Isaiah 35 is a familiar passage, beautiful passage about the highway of holiness. This first part, even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. Yes, there will be an abundance of flowers and singing and joy. The deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon as lovely as Mount Carmel or the plain of Sharon. There the Lord will display his glory, the splendor of our God. With this news, strengthen those who have tired hands. Encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear, because your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He's coming to save you. Okay, The, reign, the rule and reign of God coming to, to deliver from the, from the slavery to powers and principalities, and as a result of past sin, and to, and to release and restore creation into its destiny. And then verse 5, And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Now, if we're familiar with the miracles of Jesus, he did these things. This passage wasn't written to be read as a proof text, but it was written to capture 
born of the Holy Spirit to capture prophetic hopes for the coming kingdom of God. So when Jesus does heal the sick, when the lame do jump and leap and praise God uh, in the story of the paralytic, when, uh, when the mute begin to sing songs of praise, you will know that God has come. So Jesus's miracles, they demonstrate a, a renewed, God's renewed covenant lordship over his own creation. They restore creation to that place of delight in communion with its creator. And, and so these incredible miracles are simply signs, living manifestations of the kingdom of God that is now broken forth through in the person of Jesus and that one day will fill the whole earth when, when, he, is, when he has finally come to consummate the kingdom at the end of the age. So, so we have Jesus's miracles. Um, everywhere he goes, bringing this manifestation of a new kingdom, of a different reality that demonstrates the, the, the time of God's favor, the rule and reign of God in our midst. And the next thing that Jesus is quite familiar for is teachings. So what was the content of Jesus's teachings? Uh, it's hard to cover, right? There's a lot, there's a lot going on. I, I want to just come at it from a slightly different way. Um, Charles will know the story. I, I, I shared it in our cohort this last semester that we're in with 24-7. But I have, the, I have the immense privilege of getting to work with a, with a team of Syrian refugee widows who have become, or not, these women actually aren't widows, Syrian refugee women who lead a network of widows. Um, they, are, they are Muslim background. They fall in love with Jesus. They are sincere followers of disciples of Jesus, making disciples. And oftentimes their insight into the scripture helps me see it with new eyes. Uh, and so I asked them once in a leadership meeting, and I said, okay, you guys lead multiplying groups of disciples. What, when you look for the fruit of a disciple of Jesus, what do you think, what do you think is the fruit that defines a follower of Jesus in your groups? And they immediately, first thing they said, a follower of Jesus trusts God to take care of them without fear. Oh, that's pretty good. They then went on to say, a follower of Jesus loves sincerely without hypocrisy praise all the time in every situation for everyone and always forgives. It's hard to be comprehensive about what Jesus taught, but they were doing, they were pretty, that was pretty good off the cuff. They did a great, great work there. Jesus's teachings are, are revolutionary and they cut to the heart of, uh, of the broken systems of our world. They force us to imagine, in order to obey them, or even pretend to try to obey them, we have to reimagine the world from the ground up. Uh, you can't apply them practically, for example, to a, to a legal constitution for a, for a political government, um, because they, they speak to our heart and to those deeply rooted convictions about how, how we exist in the world. Um, so, so I'm just going to, I'm going to highlight the four that they pointed out. There are other things we could talk about, but I think that these four hit pretty close to home. A follower of Jesus trusts the father, um, you know, in an environment of great. So Jesus, uh, began to preach his teachings in an environment 
uh, of great instability. In, on one hand, in, in, in the Judaism of his time in Palestine, there would have been different groups that would have been very quite powerful. Some of them were very political and they sought, they sought security through compromise with the Roman Empire um, that was ruling over Palestine at the time. The Roman Empire was an incredibly systematic and violent oppressive force that had incredible control over everyday life. Um, but many Jews sought to make a compromise with that system in order to gain power and security for themselves. Others uh, were, were radically seeking to overthrow that system. Uh, so you had competing ideologies that, uh, that would have you know, contended for people's hearts and minds. And in the midst of this intense milieu, here Jesus comes and he says, look, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Your father clothes the grass of the field, the birds, of, he feeds the birds of the air. And you are so much more valuable to him. He says, look, people might, I mean, he goes a step further. In, in, a, in, a, in a very closely bundled series of verses, Jesus says, uh, you will be, you will be acute, falsely accused for my sake and in some cases even killed. Dot, dot, dot. Do not fear, not a hair on your head will perish. Um, Jesus called his disciples to a life of radical trust rooted in the revelation of a father of infinite affection and commitment to his children. And Jesus was honest that our experience in this world would not always reflect that truth, but it is true. And in the end, it will be vindicated as true. So, one of the things, as followers of Jesus, that Jesus invites us to, to, to do is to live free of anxiety. Now, this is a heavy thing right now, right? Anxiety is a big deal, a big deal. And we are all on our own journeys of how we cope with our anxiety, and, and I'm not trying to speak dogmatically about any approach to how one walks that out. All I'm saying is that Jesus says, Jesus invites us to a journey of being set free from anxiety, of a place of trust and belonging in the arms of the Father, because that's where Jesus lives in, and that's what he invites us to share with him. So this was, this was a radical dimension, and it, and it comes up in many contexts. Jesus is not naive about the cruel state of the world. I send you out a sheep among wolves, but he... There is, for followers of Jesus, Jesus is also revealing the true nature of creation in which we are not uh, insecure, frightened, violent creatures having to fend for ourselves. We are eternal children of an eternal father who in the end vindicates his own. And therefore, we live lives of radical trust. It's a tough one. Jesus, the second one that, that, that our Syrian friends brought up was that they, we love without hypocrisy. Um, Hypocrisy takes many forms, and we're all guilty of it. So it's easy to say, oh, hypocrites. We are all hypocrites. All humans are hypocrites. Like, not just religious people. Like, we didn't invent hypocrisy. Uh, we might have perfected it, but we didn't invent it. Uh, hypocrisy exists everywhere because, as human beings, we have these longings and aspirations uh, to, to, to be the image of God, to live a pure ideal. But at the same time, we, we live... In, in a broken, fallen world, and we ourselves are broken, fallen people. And so the reality of hypocrisy is always there, and, the, and, and that Jesus 
says the road against hypocrisy is, is humility and repentance. So Jesus offers a way out of hypocrisy, a way towards humble and sincere love, and it is the road of repentance, humility. Um, knowing that, that we, you know, be like the, this parable, he gives one of these parables of the, of the tax collector who falls on his face, says, uh, have mercy on me, Lord, I'm a sinner. This is the road out of hypocrisy. Um, so we love without hypocrisy. We trust without fear. And we pray all the time. Jesus talks a lot about prayer. Uh, gives us more insights into prayer than any, anyone else in the Bible. He talks about uh, the way we pray to a father who knows our needs. He talks about how we pray in the hidden place to the God who, who sees us in private. He talks about how we pray like a man, like a like a neighbor begging for bread in the middle of the night, we pray like a judge, like a widow asking for justice. We pray, and that we pray night and day uh, until justice comes. And so, this the, to be a follower of Jesus is to live a life of prayer, because the kingdom of God is a reorientation of the human condition to as a restored image bearer of God. And, the image bear, and if we are image bearers of God, we gaze upon God, we pray. Um, this is the essence of what it means to be human. And so followers of Jesus pray. And uh, we always forgive. This one's tough. Uh, man, I don't know how I'm just watching the clock here. Okay. So uh, one of the, the, the most revolutionary things that Jesus teaches is that we love our enemies. Uh, we forgive and we forgive and we forgive. And I don't want to go into the details of, you know, but we have to have boundaries and you want to be emotionally healthy, but you have to forgive. I don't want to do all that because uh, you, have, you have wonderful uh, pastoral people in your life who can help you sort that out. But the, the, the vision of the kingdom that Jesus gives is one in which the children of God who now have found their home in God, who have received the abundant gift of adoption into God's family, hold nothing against anyone else. We are too generously blessed to be petty. And so our hearts now now having received the adoption of sonship, give freely uh, from the abundance of God's house. And he tells us in, in many stories and in many ways um, of which you are familiar. I'm gonna tell a very quick story of forgiveness. My wife, Mary, who is just the awesomest, she, uh, after the blast in Beirut, one year ago today, I'm recording this on August 4th, um, she went down to the blast area, started, started meeting needs, huge gifts through 24 seven. I'm sure you guys were a part of that. If I know you, I know you, you were a part of that, uh, huge gifts of, uh, through 24 seven, uh, came through. We were able, we were able to begin to meet families and start meeting needs. And out of those relationships, uh, Mary and her team started these trauma healing groups. And so something like 40 plus women have been through these trauma healing groups where they're encountering stories about Jesus. They're acting out these stories about Jesus and they're processing their own trauma. And once they get through the trauma section, there's another section they can continue on if they so wish about forgiveness. So a woman named Fatima, deeply transformed by the trauma group, starts doing these forgiveness groups and has a relative who betrayed her deeply during the civil war. And as a result of this betrayal, members of her family were killed. Fatima said, I will never forgive her. I will never forgive her. And as she got to this, um, as she got to this, this lesson on forgiveness, you know, she just was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And Mary says, look, it's a journey. It's a journey. God's going to have to help you. But 
That's the invitation. This is the, Jesus actually says this is the road that leads to life. During that week, Fatima had an experience, an encounter. She said she felt something like the presence of God fall on her, and she started thinking about the story they had studied the week before, which is the story of the prodigal son, this son who wastes his father's inheritance and goes into the distant country and comes back, and the father receives him and welcomes him back in. And Fatima said, I had this realization. It was like the presence of God filled my heart, and I saw clearly the father forgave the son, even though the son hadn't even apologized yet. And I knew I needed to forgive this relative of mine, this cousin who had betrayed my family, even though she, even, even whether or not she's ready to apologize. So she reaches out, she, she forgives this woman, this woman weeps on the phone. She says, I am so ashamed, and I never thought our relationship could be restored. So this is the radical nature of the kingdom of God revealed in Jesus. This, this the father in his abundance adopts the broken children who have wondered. And as we get restored and we, we recognize the grace we have received, we cannot withhold from others that goodness. We become conduits of the extravagant forgiveness of God out into the earth. This is the kingdom. So these teachings are so radical, so transformative, so difficult to follow. Um, and Jesus teaches them, and his delivery system for them is this, are these winsome, subversive stories, which leads me into the third point, that Jesus was a master, the third manifestation of the kingdom, right? We have miracles, teachings, and the third one is that Jesus was a master of the symbolic. Jesus told parables, parables that any of us can retell because we know them so well, parables that are full of surprising twists and turns and that, that make people gasp when they hear them the first time. I noticed this first when I went to the Middle East, how remarkable the teachings of Jesus actually are uh, and how radical they are to a traditional Middle Eastern culture. And it made me just fall in love again with Jesus. This is a guy who could tell the most tricky, subversive stories and turn the whole scenario upside down. He didn't just tell stories. If you think about the Gospels, if you think about the life of Jesus, every moment in his life was this, you could paint a portrait of it. It was this living parable. Uh, we have, you know, the, this, the Jesus pulling Peter up out of the water. You know, where is your faith? This incredible image. It becomes this living parable about what it means to walk in faith. Uh, we have this, this story of the woman weeping at his feet and, and Simon the leper, you know, or Simon the Pharisee, who just doesn't get what's going on here and thinks that, and, and he, the way he sees this scenario is it's a scandal and it's embarrassing and it's brought shame on his house. And Jesus flips it upside down into this symbolic moment. But Simon, you have, have been stingy with me. And this woman weeps at my feet. Perhaps what you call shame is actually what makes her able to show love. Perhaps if you knew your own brokenness, you would be able to love like she does, right? He turns the whole scenario on its head and he does it again and again. Read through the Gospels. Every story of Jesus is a living parable of God's eternal kingdom. It's an invitation to see the world differently, to see the way people are sitting at a meal differently, to see um, a widow putting a coin in, in a box differently, to see the waste of precious resources differently, right? Jesus is turning this 
this in the, our, our vision of the world upside down so that we, as we come to see with new eyes, can enter into the kingdom. Um, so I would love to spend more time on that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rush on. So if this is the kingdom, these manifestations, these, these new creation healings, revelations of, of the rule of God, these teachings that invite us into this reorientation uh, of, of our humanity around an, our, our restored relationship with the Father, these symbolic moments that challenge and confront and bring judgment upon this dark age and reveal the glory of the age to come in the ordinary. If this is the kingdom, the most remarkable, fantastic thing of all is that Jesus takes that kingdom and he places it in the hands of ordinary, underqualified, and somewhat dysfunctional people. He, we, you know, we, we're all familiar with Peter. We know all about Peter, right? Jesus, the guy he calls the rock, is a complete mess. Jesus, if you, if you, it's amazing when you read through the Gospels how many times Jesus is telling his disciples, Screw-ups like Peter, right? You do it. You give them something to eat. When they wake him up on the boat during the storm, why are you afraid? As if they should have done something about the situation themselves. He gets the most frustrated with them when they ask him to do a miracle that he already commissioned them to do. Jesus takes the keys of the kingdom and he places it in the hands of others. Go, preach good news, heal the sick, proclaim the kingdom of God is near you. He sends them out as sheep among wolves, right, to find those who are lost. Jesus doesn't just come to give us this incredible image of, uh, of the Son of God. He comes to, in, to reorient us into a new kingdom that we are now administering to the world. The keys are in our hands. I get to work with some of the most improbable believers in the world, right? Syrian refugees, uh, Palestinian. Uh, one of the guys I work with right now is this Palestinian who fought for the Syrian army for eight years, has fallen in love with Jesus as he reads these stories. It's melted his heart. And he told me, he told me, my life has been pain, but with Jesus, there's beauty in my pain. My pain has a purpose. And now Jamal reads, my friend Jamal, who I'm talking about, he reads the story of Jesus calling Peter and making him a fisher of men. He says, can I be a fisher of men? Can he use me? This is the beauty of the kingdom. Not just that we get to hear the teachings of Jesus or practice them privately, but that we are, we are called by name to take our place in his story. That we are entrusted in our hands. Right, Our hands become the hands of Jesus. We become the body of Jesus. And so... Uh, we have just these incredible, this, this, this incredible movement of Jesus's life. Not, and, and we have the disciples, we know them quite well, but there, we know there's a much larger group following Jesus around from village to village, receiving the teaching and the authority of the kingdom. Um, and, you know, in, in one of the most famous examples, often overlooked, we have the story of Mary and Martha, right? Martha's in the kitchen, she's cooking, and it says Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his word. To sit at someone's feet means to be their disciple. Mary was being discipled by Jesus. And Martha says, Lord, get her in the kitchen and tell her to help me out a little bit. And Jesus says, only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the best part, and I won't take it from her, right? Jesus 
was entrusting the kingdom to Mary, a woman. Her own sister didn't think she deserved it. And Jesus is saying, no, this is the best part. I'm not going to take it from them. It's hers, right? We get to choose the best part. And Jesus says, I will not let anyone take it from you. The kingdom is in your hands. And so this is just the beautiful reality of, the, of Jesus's life. The life of Jesus was this life of multiplying these manifestations of the kingdom of God into the hands of ordinary people and all for the sake, at the end of the day, of a single thing. We have this moment at the end of the life of Jesus, the Last Supper, sitting around the table, and he says, how deeply I have longed to share this meal with you. The final symbol that would last, that would live forever in the, in the hearts of his people, the symbol of broken bread and poured out wine, the reality that Jesus calls us ultimately, not so that we can change the world for him, but so that we can sit at the table with him that we can eat the bread that he gives and drink from his cup and that his ever-giving presence can sustain us now and always, that we can share a fellowship with one another that without him would be impossible. We can gather around the table and know that he is the host that makes us one. This is the final image of Jesus. And in fact, all of the life of Jesus might be seen as a pre-party, so to speak to prepare us for that glorious feast that awaits us. The life of Jesus exhorts us to drink our ordinary water, knowing that, that it shall one day in a moment become wine. To take the lowly seat, knowing we shall one day have a better one. To burn bright with midnight oil, looking over the horizon for our long-awaited but slow-in-coming bridegroom. To go out into the highways and byways, to the cold and forgotten places, and call in the lonely and the poor and the sick and the hurting, so that the banquet shall be full. And to prepare ourselves that we might be properly dressed for that great day, eager to celebrate with our heads held high. Like the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see through the life of Jesus a world transformed and set ablaze we see once more the glory of Eden and the glory of our place within it. Let me just pray for you guys to close. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb, is being prepared and that you have come to prepare, to call us to yourself. You have come to bring that kingdom of heaven to earth, to start the feast now among us to send us out to prepare for that wedding. We thank you that you place the kingdom in our hands. We thank you that you call us to a life of trust and sincerity and forgiveness and prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray over my, my friends, my brothers and sisters at Proximity, God, uh, that you, that as they gaze upon you, Lord Jesus, they would feel the joy of you, of, your, of you as the host in their midst. That they would feel the empowerment as you breathe the Spirit into them and place the kingdom in their hands. And that they would feel the delight of the Father as they see many sons and daughters adopted and brought in to the kingdom family. In Jesus' name, amen. Great to share with you guys today. Much love to you all.